This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. Lately, I have been meditating quite a bit on 2 Corinthians chapter 4, particularly two sections of it. One is verses 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And the second portion is verses 17 through 18, which say this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the thing but to the things that are unseen why these verses well first because of the unsettling times in which we're all living but not only that it's also because those passages are a good reminder all the time that in the midst of any crisis or any period of suffering large or small Jesus Christ is our life and our hope and as my next guest says when any kind of calamity strikes we can count on God not because we feel close to him all the time but because he remains close to us so we'll be talking about this today with Dr. Harold Sankbile he's a former pastor of 30 years. He served as Associate Professor of Ministry and Mission at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And since 2008, he has served as Executive Director for Spiritual Care for Doxology, the Lutheran Center for Spiritual Care and Counsel. He's out with a wonderful new book called Christ and Calamity, Grace and Gratitude in the Darkest Valley. Dr. Sankbile, it's so great to have you on the show again. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, what a joy to be back with you, Janet. Thank you. Well, calamity does seem to be on many people's minds right now. How do you think we ought to approach this whole issue of calamity from a biblical point of view? Well, I think the first thing is not to shrink from it. Uh, Christians are not afraid of reality because they know uh, they have a Lord who himself endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. Yeah. Uh, so we can take our reality straight. We don't have to uh, uh, run the other way. So um, this is a perplexing thing, of course, not a comfortable thing. And uh, what we've all endured uh, all around the world, actually, in the last uh, three, four months has kind of got our attention, I think, yes. uh, about what's really important. Yes. Do you have any particular observations about this time period in particular being, as it were, a, a more intense time of calamity for many people? Yes. Well, I, I'd say this. It's a very small book, by the way, uh, kind of a devotional book and easily accessible. Um, in there, I, I, I make the point that calamities come in different sizes and shapes, and maybe uh, the lesson that we can learn from the broader uh, corporate uh, health um, and pandemic and, and, and all the disruption we're experiencing currently in America and around the world um, does help us to see, get a clearer view of, 
uh, of where the roots and, and the basis of our faith is found, not in our external circumstances, certainly, but in the Word of God, and particularly uh, the Word of God made flesh, uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, and so our anchor holds firm uh, within the veil, as the old uh, hymn says, uh, no matter what's going on around us. Yeah, I love that hymn. You know, you talk about faith, which is obvious. We have to talk about our faith in Christ when we're looking at whatever is going on in our lives from, you know, in terms of calamity. But you point out when, when we're faithless, Christ is our faithfulness. And I think a really important point that you have made here is that our faith is not in our feelings. Our faith is in the object of our faith who is Jesus Christ, when you are putting that truth into practice in your Christian life, how do you move people from the mindset that your feelings really aren't, you know, equitable with your faith? You're really Mm -hmm. trusting in Christ, someone outside of you, to be faithful Mm -hmm. during times when you may feel that your faith is being shaken. Well, of course, that is is an issue because, uh, you know, faith, as we think about it, and it does have a sensational or an experiential dimension and there is a feeling aspect to it. But the reality is, Janet, our, our feelings are going up and down all the time. And, and uh, so you can't really count on them. <clears throat> In fact, uh, some um, scientists even point out that our bodies, because they're responsive uh, to the tides and, and everything else, uh, they, they, uh, our emotions are in a constant state of, state of flux. Yeah. Uh, probably the best way I know of to address this is to look at... Uh, the disciples' experience on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 8, uh, where they were there, scared silly. Uh, they thought the boat was going down, and here's Jesus asleep in the stern of the boat. <laughs> and then they shook him awake. They said, Lord, don't you care uh, if we're drowning? And um, he, uh, of course, stilled the storm, but he also uh, gently chided them. He says, you of little faith. Right. And then just a few chapters later, a similar incident with Peter, um, who uh, saw Jesus coming across the waves, and he was uh, alarmed, thinking he'd seen a ghost. And, and Jesus called him and says, If it's you, Lord, uh, ask me to come to you. So he said, Yes, come here. And so he stepped out, first one step and then the other. He began to sink when he saw the waves. And Jesus reached out and grabbed him, and again he called him, You of little faith. So I think that's a good uh, lesson for us all. Um, the smallness of faith is a very human experience because our faith sometimes is very, very weak. But really what saved the disciples, what saved Peter, was Jesus. He's strong to save, even though our faith may be weak. So our faith has to be rooted in something outside of ourselves, not in faith itself, but in the object of faith, namely the Lord Jesus. Right. So don't always look at your own faith and say, it's too small, I need more of it. That seems like a really poor way to try to solve the problem. It never increases your faith when you talk about how small it is, unless you're calling out, Lord, increase my faith. That's also a biblical concept. Exactly. I believe, help my unbelief. Yes, right. It's a scriptural prayer. Exactly. So when you say something here about misery, I think this is a really important point that you've made because you cite Deuteronomy 32:39 in saying that all misery comes from God's gracious hand. Now that sounds offensive probably to a lot of modern ears because people want to never blame God for anything that's going on that's terrible and he's certainly not the author of sin. But what about this issue of misery and how we should see it the way God sees it in terms of its purposes and also its origin? Mm. Right. Well, that's it. Uh, 
you know, uh, all pain, for example, we can think of instances of pain that, that are really healing. Uh, if, if, we're, if we're severely injured, the doctor sometimes has to inflict pain in order to, to bring healing to our bodies. And uh, so subjectively, the experience of, uh, experiences of life are like that. Um, sometimes they can be very, very miserable. Uh, but, you know, as, as uh, Job said to his wife, you know, we receive good things from the Lord's hand. Why not also evil things? Yeah. Uh, things that are apparently evil to us have ultimately a good purpose, even though we don't know it at the time, and, and they are indeed miserable. Uh, hanging on to him, uh, they draw us closer to him, clinging more cl- closely to him. We find uh, consolation and comfort in the midst of that. We do. The other thing is, that strikes me is when you're talking about crying out because Christ is always our advocate in the midst of whatever we're going through. There's also, as you go along in the Christian life, a recognition, I think, with most of us that whatever misery is in the past, we see it with fresh eyes as God using that as part of our sanctification process. And it, I'm wondering why we never tend to see that in the moment. We only see it you know, after the fact, looking back on that. Oh, Lord, that's what you were using that for. Yeah, well, I have a great friend who says, you know, it's interesting that we, in the midst of distress, we often say, well, why is this horrible thing happening? And yet we forget that any given day there are scores of things, literally scores of things, wonderful things that happen, and we never ask, you know, why are these great things happening? True. It's only those difficult things that cause us problems. Um, So it's hard to get the big picture in the midst of that, Um, and I think that's uh, really what these incidents of distress do they call us out of ourselves to find our hope and our confidence in Christ our Lord, and then uh, for His sake to find our purpose and direction as we express our love for Him and our love for others. Now that's well said, and in the issue of affliction is such an important one to address as well, which you do in this book. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with Dr. Harold Sankbile, and the name of his book is Christ and Calamity. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Janet Meffer today. The Ministry of Preborn is dedicated to helping save preborn babies from abortion through ultrasound, and even in this time of national crisis, Preborn is there. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn. No college classes and sheltering in have led to an explosion of unplanned pregnancies. Women are panicked about their pregnancies and wanting to abort. Our crisis line is the busiest it's ever been. Here's Catherine, one of our crisis line operators. Girls are scared and often seeking abortion as an easy way out. Girls are often desperate being pregnant in this pandemic. With your help, we are able to be here for them. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you join Preborn in the cause for life? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Call 855-402-BABY. Thank you. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. 
Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. It really is the case that all of us as Christians go through sufferings great and small. You never really know when you're going to be walking into a period of suffering or trial or even a calamity. And many people have been commenting that we're really in the midst of a calamity as a nation right now. Even globally, we're in the midst of a calamity. But we really need to think about it biblically, regardless of what the calamity is. Dr. Harold Sankbile is joining me, and we are so glad to be talking with him about his book, Christ and Calamity, Grace and Gratitude in the Darkest Valley. We were talking a little bit about this issue of crying out, Christ is our advocate, and the fact that the Lord is with us in the midst of all of our suffering and uses it for his glory. One of the things you also point out is that Christ is our comfort, which we certainly know we had a comforter in the Holy Spirit. How do we find joy in suffering, though? Because you've said we can, provided it's wrapped in the suffering of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, that's it. Uh, you know, Janet, the problem is we have a hard time distinguishing joy um, from from pleasure. Uh, happiness is usually defined in terms of pleasure or lack of distress. Um, but, you know, Jesus uh, said um, that he wanted people to share in his joy. What was his joy? To do the will of his Father. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, as I quoted earlier, the Hebrews text, um, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, uh, all of its misery and ugliness, uh, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So clearly the Bible makes that distinction that there can be joy in the midst of suffering. In fact, the letter to the Philippians points that out all over the place, the epistle of joy. You know, and these things counted all joy when these things happened. Notice it's counted all joy. It isn't that it's a pleasurable experience. Yes. And, and we don't, Christians don't have to have a frontal lobotomy and pretend <laughs> There is no pain, there is no misery. We call a spade a spade, and, and we can do everything we can possibly do to find relief in the midst of our distress, physical or emotional. Uh, but ultimately, comfort in, in the midst of these situations is found, and not when we find uh, a release from the distress or the pressure, or, or things become uh, wonderful instead of uh, calamitous. Uh, but rather, comfort in the Bible means to have uh, a presence with it, to have the, the comforter is the Holy Spirit. Uh, right. Jesus said, when, when I go away, I will send another comforter, uh, like himself, he implied, to be with you. Yes. And uh, so um, to have somebody by our side, uh, namely uh, the Lord Christ himself, who in his own physical body endured everything that any human being could ever endure and more, because he was the sin-bearer for us, uh, and then the promise of, of the Holy Spirit who, who prays for us even when we can't find words to pray. Um, I, I believe there is genuine comfort. And, but However, I point out in the book, remember that comfort is not always comfortable, mm-hmm. meaning 
sometimes the misery continues. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so chronic pain, for example, may uh, continue, and that's an unfortunate situation here in this fallen world. But the promise is that clinging tightly to our Lord God, who has won the victory, uh, looking forward to the ultimate choice that will far outweigh all present sufferings, the Bible says, mm-hmm. uh, we can find uh, strength not just to grit our teeth and carry on, but to to find our hope rooted solidly in Him who is the rock of our salvation. Amen. It goes back to that passage, one of the verses I'd mentioned from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that, you know, that goes along with James 1, because when we hear, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, the second part of that is for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That yeah. gives whatever you're going through a purpose and a meaning. And I think for many Christians, when you are walking through something particularly difficult, you're always trying to find why, 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 Lord. And you don't always yeah. know. But to no. produce steadfastness, that that is very yeah. important to God that we remain faithful and steadfast as we're going through whatever we're happen, you know, happening to go through in the moment. Right, yeah, uh, so that is indeed a test of faith. So on the one hand, it's a, it's a cleansing or refining uh, of, of the impurities that are mingled with our faith. The um, Bible has that picture, but then it is a test of faith. And I, I, I make the point in the book that, you know, these days we're all talking about the importance of testing um, for viral infections um, and, and uh, calamity, distress, uh, problems, suffering. They are a test for faith, and when you test positive for faith, it's not a bad thing. It's a very good thing, but that <laughs> demonstrates that your hope is fixed where it needs to be. That's good. Sometimes we need to go through those situations to see a little bit more clearly what we uh, what we assume is true, but we really don't fully embrace. Yeah, that's right. Well, and as you say, Jesus sometimes calls us to places we'd rather not go. So when we're going back to the Lord's imperative, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, the cross is the way of death. I mean, we basically back in Jesus time, if you took up the cross, you were already dead. So when we bear our crosses, you say Christ is our king. What does that mean exactly when you say it that way, that when I am taking up my cross and I am dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ, how does Christ being my king make a difference? Um, well, as the Apostle Paul would say, you know, he is our life. You know, you died in Christ, and you now are alive in him, because you were buried by baptism into his death and raised with him in his resurrection. Uh, so the life you live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Uh, to see that more clearly, uh, that everything that is selfish and sinful and me-centered in me must die. That is an ongoing crucifixion of the uh, of the sinful nature. Uh, so that day by day, the new person that I am in Christ Jesus, by faith in him, uh, can uh, arise and live. And, and that's really my only hope. Uh, so it is a, uh, the way of the cross is the way that leads home. As you said, it's a paradox. Um, um, I mean, Jesus, the, the night of his betrayal and in the garden prayed earnestly that the father would remove the cup of suffering from him mm-hmm. and yet he said not my will but yours be done so he he did take up the cross that the father placed upon him and by his misery and and horrible death uh, he conquered sin death and hell 
and emerged the victor. So uh, that removes the sting uh, of, of, of death itself and, and also helps us to find uh, the tinge of hope and confidence even in the midst of suffering. It becomes strangely, it actually becomes a mark of ownership, a sign that we belong to him. Um, provided that it is, um, as I said, a test of faith, indicating our our confidence is rooted in Christ and not in ourselves. So um, that cross that we bear is a sign and a seal of our salvation. Um, uh, Martin Luther once said it's it's like the colors of the court. You you belong to a certain prince, uh, um, and you wear his his colors and emblems. Well, the cross is the sign of of your identity as a Christian that you belong to him. Amen. That's well said. I I also really liked your point when you were talking about the fact Christ is with us when we are alone, and we certainly know that. But you made the remark that if we want stability, we have to find an anchor outside this turbulent world. And I thought, boy, is that applicable right now? It's it's always applicable. But especially now when there's so much uncertainty and stress and people are saying, you know, our country's in absolute upheaval. What am I to think? Where, what, where is God taking us? We do need that anchor outside our world. That, that, I just think that was such a brilliant way to say it. You can't find it in this world. It's seeking in Christ. Yeah, otherwise, uh, you know, it's a, to use the analogy of a storm-tossed sea without an anchor, you're just floating around and drifting around and, and very vulnerable in a, in a storm-tossed sea. So uh, having a fixed anchor, having a certain hope, helps us to sail through very stormy seas with an inner calm. And uh, so I guess uh, uh, my plea would be that, that in this time of turmoil and distress, that every Christian uh, take their... Um, focus not away from and put it away from the turmoil away from the inner distress and put it clearly on christ his promises his cross his resurrection and then we can uh, um, live as his people and and serve him and we can be uh, um, beacons of light in a very dark world we can be uh, an oasis of calm on 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 a stormy sea and uh, stormy desert, and, and uh, so we can bring peace to others who are severely distressed, and, and we can demonstrate the mercy and the grace and the compassion to people who find so much injustice and so misery uh, for, for so many reasons. Well, and what a contrast, what a witness it is when you have a Christian in the midst of turmoil, calm and peaceful and full of joy despite the trials. That is really a witness to the world in which people can come and say, well, how are you so calm and joyful in the midst yeah, of this? And that's the biblical model, isn't it, for witness? You know, be ready at all times to give an answer for the hope. that is in you. And when everything else is hopeless, how can you be hopeful? Tell me about that. And that's our opening. It is. And and in anything that we're going through, we can bring our worries and anxieties to the Lord Jesus. What about Christ as our victory and and focusing on him as the author and finisher of our faith? How does that help you, for example, during times of trial and calamity? Well, it, it says that this won't last forever. Um, you know, um, Jesus uh, told his disciples when when there's great turmoil in the earth and the uh, and, and the sky, uh, when the powers of heaven are shaken, when everything seems to be in distress, when when people are saying, you know, wanting, calling out to the hills to fall on them and, and, and the mountains to cover them. So when these horrible things begin to take place, then look up mm-hmm. and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this is, you know, that Christ is coming back tomorrow. He might, 
Uh, but I do know that every era is, is, the, is the final stage for the Christian church. And, and therefore, maybe this experience is helping us, shaking us up enough to know that you know, we have a glorious future ahead. And that gives us confidence right now. We're not waiting for some pie in the sky by and by, but the light of eternity shines brightly in the face of Christ Jesus. And it's reflected in God's people as they live, not for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Wonderful. Christ and calamity. Thank you, Dr. Harold Sankbio. We'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Great to have you with us. I thought this was a very interesting story, LifeSite News reported. And it might seem like a bit of a small story, but in the broader context of what is going on in our culture, I think it actually has a very big footprint, and I'll explain why in a minute. The headline is, U.S. Newspaper Refuses to Run Pro-Life All Lives Matter Ad Claiming It's Racist. You can imagine what's going on here. This is from Rockford, Illinois. A pro-life organization has been blocked from running this pro-life All Lives Matter ad in a local newspaper, the Rockford Register Star. LifeSite News reports the Rockford Family Initiative, which is the Illinois pro-life group that wanted to place the ad, had a picture of an unborn baby with the words All Lives Matter above the picture. And then the ad said, every child in the womb is a person created in the image of God, a person loved by God, and a little girl or boy who is our sister or brother. Abortion is the unjust killing of an innocent person. All lives will not matter until every person is loved and respected, no matter if they are black or white, born or preborn. We must unite to end the killing of babies by abortion. Apparently, the newspaper agreed to run the ad and then they changed their minds. They came back and the sales manager told the pro-life group, all lives matter is seen as racist to the black community. That, that's insane. Uh, we know it's it, it flies in the face of the narrative that they want to put forward on the left right now. The Black Lives Matter organization, which is a Marxist queer organization. That's how they build themselves. And if you go on their website and you read what they say, you'll see exactly what they're all about. And what it really is, is using the issue of race to advance Marxist revolutionary goals and sexual radical goals. So that's what Black Lives Matter, the organization, is all about. And certainly there are many people who are just concerned about the death of George Floyd, which is fine. Everybody is concerned about the death of George Floyd, but that whole thing has been hijacked in the name of George Floyd to do things that are now involving tearing down statues of abolitionists. So clearly we're way beyond the mere tagline Black Lives Matter, which nobody is disputing. The, the issue here is how much do you cave to the left and buy into this fake narrative that you can't say all lives matter simply because they want to talk about race? That's fine to talk about race. But when it comes to abortion, very few people want to talk about race. When you look at the statistics on black abortions and the rate of black abortions, it's astronomical. 
So why can't we have that discussion? And it's just where we are. So this kind of goes along with a new study that's come out from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. They're out with a new report on what Americans think about human life. And this is from the Christian Post. Around six in 10 Americans do not believe that human life is inherently sacred, though more than two-thirds believe human beings are basically good. Hold on a second. Hold the phone. Absolutely backwards. Human life is sacred. Human life is important because God created it. God says, thou shalt not kill because human life is important. We reflect his image and his likeness in our creation. He breathed into the body of Adam, the very breath of life, and then formed Eve out of the side of Adam. So we understand how God created male and female and the importance of our existence to God who laid down his own life in Jesus Christ on the cross to pay our sin debt because he so loved the world and rose again to forgive us and to send us to heaven for those who would believe. So we know the story of salvation, but this is just inherently backwards. Two thirds of the people in the United States believe human beings are basically good. Have you turned on the news in the last two weeks? Apparently not. How in the world can you claim, like G.K. Chesterton used to say, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, I find it amazing that anybody would try to ever argue against total depravity or original sin, as he called it, given that it's the only doctrine that can be empirically verified, meaning you can prove it every single day by pointing to multiple examples of it. It's right in front of your face every single day, not only in other people, but in ourselves, in ourselves. I sometimes ask myself, how am I going to change this, that, or the other thing when I can't even fix this sin in me? You know, we all have these besetting sins. Oh, I wish I could just be free of this body of sin. I wish I could just be free of what I'm struggling with. I really, really do. But we're never going to get to that point until we're finally with the Lord. And that's our hope. We're forgiven. We are renewed. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ. And he loves us. And through his Holy Spirit, he is continuing to sanctify us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And we have the hope that the Holy Spirit that has been deposited in us is a guarantee of what is to come. Our inheritance is heirs of the kingdom. That is the best news in the whole world. But right now we're in a Romans 7 situation where we are really struggling with our sin and we always will. The reason that we are struggling with our sin in this life is because we no longer belong to this world. There is no struggle against sin for those who are not born again. Why would they struggle against the world? They're part of the world. They're in it. Their father is not the Lord God Almighty, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not their father. Their father is the devil. So this is basic Bible truth. Anyway, going on. Data for the report came from a survey that was conducted in in January of 2,000 adults in the United States. Among respondents, only 39% said they agreed with the statement, human life is sacred. And that was defined by the researchers as having unconditional intrinsic worth. Now, what do you think is going to happen in a culture where the majority of Americans don't believe that human life is sacred? Why would they believe it? We're back to the same argument we often bring up. When you are raised in a public school situation to believe that you came out of a pile of goo long ago because Darwin said so, when you believe that there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no purpose to life, everything that came about was 
you know, selection and it was random elements that were working on you and forces were working on you perhaps here or there, evolutionary or otherwise, to get you here. But your life has no meaning. You'll, your life has no eternal significance, certainly, because when you die, you're just going to go back to the dust and that's the end of you. Now, none of us would be consistent, I don't believe, in holding to that position if somebody actually took the time to have a long conversation about it. If you sat down the average person, for example, a Jewish person, and said, and I'm not singling out anybody, that's just the first example that I had in mind because of the Holocaust. And if you said, do you think that it would be right for Adolf Hitler to go to his grave and to never, ever, ever face eternal justice. I would imagine that most people, not just Jewish people, but any people who are upset and outraged by the Holocaust would say, no, that that would be horrendous. That means that Adolf Hitler was never punished. He got away with it. Now, some people might say it's okay because he's dead and you know he can't hurt anymore. But we have that eternal sense within all of us of justice that when something goes wrong or when somebody kills somebody or when somebody wrongs somebody in a terribly, terribly, you know, a terrible manner, I should say, that one day, even if the justice system fails, one day there will be justice for that person. Or in God's economy, the way that justice is dealt with in the life of a Christian is Christ put away our sins. He took the punishment for us. The punishment didn't go away. It was just given to our mediator instead of us, for which we should be rightly, eternally grateful for that sacrifice. But I I find it hard to believe that people are even thinking straight on this entire point. Many respondents who identified as religious were more likely than the total sample to believe that human life is sacred. For example, 60% of evangelical and born-again Christian respondents agreed that life is sacred. What happened to the other 40%? 40% of evangelical Christians don't believe that life has intrinsic worth. Maybe that accounts for the evangelical abortion rate. Among other respondent groups, 46% of Pentecostals, 45% of mainline Protestants, and 43% of Catholics agree that human life is sacred. That last category is a little strange because the Catholic Church has had a very strong position on human life. Meanwhile, 12% of respondents said they believe people are only material substance, biological machines, and another 12% said they believe humans are part of the mind of the universe. It's terrific. Crazy. George Barno, the director of research, said in a statement that the view of mankind being basically good is negatively influencing current debates over law enforcement and systemic racism. He said a movement to defund police departments might make sense if people are innately good. People with a humanistic worldview argue that crime and violence happen because of poverty, bad parenting, systemic discrimination and other external forces. And yet crime statistics and political tensions and America's moral deterioration and confusion suggest we are neither innately good nor that emotional responses to empirical challenges will solve the problems. Only God can solve our problems ultimately. He's the only hope we have. We're going to come back. More to come on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four 
oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. One ultrasound is just $28 and every gift helps. To donate, please call now 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. By the way, we still don't have a decision yet from the Supreme Court on this very important case, June Medical Services v. Russo. The case involves a challenge to the constitutionality of the Louisiana law called Act 620, which was passed in 2014. Damon Cudahy writes a piece over at the Daily Signal about it, saying that he testified in favor of it before the legislature in that state and later as an expert witness took the stand to defend it when it was challenged in federal court. And this women's health bill actually was led by a woman, written by a woman. It had overwhelming bipartisan support. And it should be all about having outpatient surgical centers. Uh, They should be required to have hospital admitting privileges. And that's what the whole thing is about. And we'll see where it comes down, because it is very important. Can you really put abortion restrictions in place given Roe. Well, you ought to overturn Roe. You ought to overturn it. But we'll see what happens. I don't have a lot of faith in the Supreme Court, honestly. After this Bostock decision, after some of these recent decisions, I have very low expectations. Now, talking about human life, I I have to come to what's been going on, and especially in that Barna research that's just been put out, that a majority of Americans do not believe that human life is sacred, and some 60% of evangelicals agree that human life is sacred, meaning that 40% do not. That's just heinous. I can't even wrap my head around that. But you look at what is going on with these people who are also believing in the same survey that people are basically good. Two thirds of Americans think people are basically good. That's insane. It's absolutely insane. But what? how would you think about this when you look at what's going on in society, which I said a few minutes ago, turn on the news. You really believe people are basically good? People who are shooting each other or looting or setting fires or, you know, doing what they did, the federal government to General Flynn 
really? You think this is people are just basically good. They just had a bad day. They had a bad day when they tried to impeach the president over a lie. Yes. You know, they just had a blip. Yeah, I don't believe that for a minute. And here's more evidence of this from the Washington Examiner. Christian figures and symbols have increasingly become the subject of debate as protesters across the country demand a reckoning on racial justice, pulling down statues and criticizing controversial figures along the way. Protesters occupied the exterior of St. John's Episcopal Church near the White House on Monday, refashioning it as the Black House Autonomous Zone, a reference to the police-free zone in Seattle, which is kind of falling apart, by the way. The church's exterior was vandalized the second time the building has been defaced since, since protesters burned its basement in early June. Several protesters told the Washington Examiner that the zone was their way of scoring restitution for slave owners who were Episcopalian. Well, I'm sure those long dead people appreciate it. The Baz, I guess that's what they're calling it, the Black House Autonomous Zone, was a short-lived phenomenon. Police cleared it out early Tuesday morning after the president tweeted that there will never be an autonomous zone in the nation's capital. In other cities, the damage done to public Christian fixtures was more permanent. Protesters in California this weekend pulled down and defaced statues of Junipero Serra, a Spanish priest whom Pope Francis canonized as a Roman Catholic saint in 2015. Sarah has long been a figure of controversy in the state, with his detractors calling him a colonizer and his defenders saying that he was one of the main people who combated the cruelties of Spanish colonizers. And after a statue of Sarah was knocked down in San Francisco, the Catholic archbishop issued a statement defending the priest and saying that the protests, which he believes began as sincere calls for racial justice after the death of George Floyd, have been hijacked by some into a movement of violence, looting and vandalism, which then led Matt Schlapp, for example, the chairman of the American Conservative Union, to say statues of Jesus are next. It won't end. Pray for the USA, followed by Sean King, a prominent figure in the Black Lives Matter movement to come out this week, tweeting that taking down statues of Jesus would be acceptable so long as they are statues that depict Jesus as white. He tweeted, yes, I think the statues of the white European they claim is Jesus should also come down. They are a form of white supremacy, always have been. That went viral. And then at the same time, as many commentators discuss the merits of removing religious statuary, religious ministers who express unpopular positions on race and religion have been silenced. The Archdiocese of Boston last week asked for the resignation of Daniel Maloney, a priest who had served as chaplain at MIT. Maloney sent an email to students in which he wrote that George Floyd had not lived a virtuous life and that it was not clear that his death in police custody was racially motivated. Maloney added, however, that Christians should take a moment to treat other people with charity, arguing that charging others with racism will not bring about healing. And he said racism is a sin, but I guess that doesn't matter because he got fired. So what's going to happen? next? Are you going to see statues of Jesus attacked? I don't know where where they would turn their attention, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. You've had attacks on churches. Yeah, you've had attacks on all sorts of Christian statues. People have done this before, so it wouldn't surprise me at all. But what is it saying in the larger context of where this culture is headed? Get rid of America. And Christianity, folks, is part and parcel of what they hate about America. Think about that for a moment. The incredible connection between Christianity, the Bible is the blueprint for our civilization and how intrinsically entwined they are 
you know, if you're going to get rid of America, you got to have Christianity going along with it. Probably before you ever get rid of America, you're going to clamp down on the church. And it's happening now. The Bostock decision is going to be one we look back at as a horrendous step backward for us as free Christians in the United States of America. We still don't know what will happen with that, but it's a sign of revolution. And here's what's really ironic about this. The founder of BET, Robert Johnson, did an interview on Fox News talking about these people who are toppling all these statues, which in many cases, these are white people doing this. These are white people doing this. He had some interesting things to say about this movement. Listen to cut one. The people who are basically tearing down statues, trying to make a statement, are are basically borderline anarchists, the way I look at it. They really have no agenda other than the idea we're going to topple a statue because what? It's not going to close the wealth gap. It's not going to give uh, a kid whose parents can't afford a college money to go to college. It's not going to close the labor gap between what white workers are paid and what black workers are paid. Uh-huh. And it's not going to take people off welfare or food stamps. People having fun that they can go out and pull down a statue and have the mistaken assumption that black people are sitting around cheering for them. Say, look at these white people. They're doing something so important to us. They're taking down a statue of a Civil War general who fought for the South. Uh, you know, black people, in my opinion, black people laugh at white people who do this. Uh, Interesting, isn't it? It's kind of funny because you might have seen just in the last few days the fact that the company that makes Eskimo pies is going to be changing the name of Eskimo pies because Eskimos are very offended by this. Uh, My time living in Alaska, I met quite a few Eskimos and I can tell you uh, they, they don't really care about Eskimo pies. They don't care doesn't matter to him. But that's the same sort of thing. You have these anarchists tearing down these statues as a movement of revolution. And meanwhile, you have the founder of BET saying black people are laughing at these people because the people who really are concerned about improving the black community know that tearing down statues isn't going to do anything. Well, it shows that you have two different teams here. Well, you probably have a lot more than two who are all kind of engaged in a big intersectional battle, but they have very different views on what they're actually trying to accomplish. There are some people who really want to accomplish something significant that isn't necessarily bad. And then you have people who are jumping in and just trying to destroy everything. One more cut from Robert Johnson. Cut two. Same way we laugh at white people who say we got to uh, take off um, the uh, the TV shows. We got to, you know, the Dukes of Hazard. I'll bet you if you go back and look at the Nielsen ratings when the Dukes of Hazard were on television, I'll bet you it had a huge black viewing population. You know, that's the, that's the one thing you do, research it. Find out. Because blacks watch more television than whites did. It's always been historically. So if a, ra- if a show has enough ratings to stay on television, as long as the Dukes of Hazzard did, I guarantee you it had more black people watching as a percentage. Beverly Hillbillies. Black people watch the Beverly Hillbillies. My folks grew up, everybody, you know, 8 o'clock, whenever it came on, black folks were tuning into the Beverly Hillbillies. So uh, white Americans seem to think that if they just do... Uh, sort of emotionally or drastic things that black people are going to say white people love us because they took down a statue of Stonewall Jackson. 
He gets it. I mean, he completely gets what's going on. And so do a lot of the rest of us, which is why when you see the Dixie Chicks have changed their name, you kind of eye roll and say, really? What, what is this going to do? The Dixie Chicks have now changed their name to The Chicks. Very catchy. Very catchy. Because you were offending so many people. No, but they're good liberals. They're good liberals and they want to be able to have that sort of an impact and make a social statement and do virtue signaling, kind of like Lady Antebellum. What? What is this accomplishing? What kind of good is this accomplishing? It really remains to be seen. Thank you so much for being with us. We got to end it there, but we appreciate your tuning in as always on Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.